What's up, everyone? Welcome into another episode of Slab Talk. I'm your host, Amil Sarfani, and this is my sports card show. I appreciate you tuning in today. We've got an awesome guest joining us to talk about card shows. With the National coming up, I thought this was a perfect time to have someone like Ryan, who goes to a ton of card shows almost every weekend going to card shows, uh, to bring you on, talk a little bit about your experience through uh, going to card shows this year and what you have uh, to help people who are preparing for the Dallas card show or the Chicago or other card shows that are going to be coming up. So Ryan with Breakout Cards on Instagram and on YouTube, he's got a great channel. Check him out. Thank you so much for joining, man. How are you doing today? Good, and thank you for inviting me on the show. Glad to be here. Yeah, yeah. No, uh, appreciate you taking the time out to do it. Um, so I wanted to start out with uh, just getting a little background on who you are and uh, your experience in the hobby uh, and how this last year has kind of treated you with going to so many card shows. Talk about how many you've been going to and what that's like. Yeah, so my name's Ryan Nolan, named after that famous pitcher, and I've been the I've been the card game for over 15 years. I mean, I don't really have a definite date because I started when I was very very young, going to shows and going to flea markets, trying to find deals and build up my collection over those years. And um, about the last year or so, I started a YouTube channel with one of my other friends, Stephen, and we try to go to different card shows every single weekend. I try to hit up at least one show, sometimes maybe two or three. And you can see that sometimes on the vlogs on the channel, like the craziest weekend I've had so far, I went to three different shows within 24 hours in Florida. So I was driving all over the place. Um, and then in two more weeks, I'm going to be going, I don't know when this is going to be published or not, but on the same weekend, I'm going to Dallas in the Atlanta card show, flying out from work on Friday night, straight to Dallas, going to Dallas Saturday morning through afternoon, flying out to Atlanta Saturday night and doing the Atlanta show Sunday morning before flying back to Orlando. So I'm always out there trying to see you know, what's going on in different markets across the United States, trying to meet new people, make some deals and build out vlogs, not just on the card show itself, but kind of the community what's there, you know, so many people talk about just the cards at the show, but it's more than that. You have to talk to the dealers. You have to talk to the people there. You have to see what's around in the area, any activities to do the foods, the local cuisine, like there's so much more to an area than just the card show itself. And I try to document that experience on the YouTube channel and you can find some of my vlogs are between 30 and 45 minutes long. They're very long time, but you'll find a lot of information about it. That's, I mean, that's insane. I mean, going to car shows every weekend, that's so much fun. How are you balancing that right now with your life? You you do have a job, right? I mean, you have work, you said. So what do you do for work and how are you balancing that? Is it just every weekend you're working Monday through Friday and then going to the car shows? How, how is that working for you right now? Yeah. So I'm actually a data analyst. So okay. if you guys know what a data analyst is, I work with databases on a daily. I do some coding in SQL. And then I also do some Salesforce on the side as well. Kind of like I kind of do a jack of all trades, just a little, whatever I need to be at with work. So I work from eight to five, um, how I balance everything. So in the mornings, I try to go on runs. Uh, then after work, I'll try to work on a YouTube video before heading to the gym. It's a very hectic schedule. I also have a girlfriend, so I'm trying to balance that. And then with card shows, um, so what I do with that is I try to fly out on Saturday mornings, go okay. to the card show as early as possible. So I'll find a flight that's like at 5 a.m. or 6 a.m. Um, sometimes it's not always possible. You have to fly out Friday night, but just really depends on the show. Um, but if you fly out Saturday morning and then you leave Sunday afternoon, you only have to pay for one day at the hotel. And then 
there's less expenses because then you don't have to worry about meals for Friday. You don't have to worry about all the meals for Saturday and Sunday as well. So I kind of balance it with that. I get back Sunday early afternoon when I try to edit the video, then uh, go to work in the morning and try to edit that video before publishing it on a Monday. Try my best to get it then, but sometimes with these vlogs, they take 10 plus hours to edit. So I can't promise that. Ryan, I like really respect the hustle, man. That's like, that's crazy. And I love to hear it. Like that's, that's what gives me so much confidence in the hobby is that it really does have this effect on people where it gets you absolutely in it and obsessed and you're clearly there. Uh, and so can you talk to me like why, like what about the hobby and what about sports cards makes you want to do this so much? I mean, you're clearly very committed and it's a, clearly a very big part of your life. Can you talk me through what sports cards has kind of meant to you and what, what role it plays in your life right now? Yeah. I mean, I think what the role it's played in my life, I've always known sports cards. I mean, growing up, my dad used to take me all the shows in the flea market. So I'm just kind of used to, you know, being in the hobby for such a long time. I've learned about the history of it. You know, a lot of people don't realize cards have been around since the late 1800s. So there's hundreds of years, pretty much of cards that you have to learn. And I'm still learning things every single day about new players, new sports, new brands that are out there. And it just amazes me how much there is. And when you think you know everything, you find out something new about a card or a specific set from either a dealer or someone walking around the show. And you're like, huh, I didn't realize that. And like recently I've gone into other sports as well. Like I started trying to learn as much as I could about cricket. I've started learning a lot more about boxing and golf also, and realize the histories of those cards because most people realize people don't realize even those cards are getting printed in the early 1900s and 1800s as well. Uh, these sports have been around for such a long time. So there's so much information about there. And then as like a data analyst, I love looking at data. I try to figure out what price, what cards are very undervalued right now and what I think can see going up in the future. I like looking at the stats of players and saying, oh, this player is definitely one of your top 10 or 20 greats. Why is this price is so low? I'm going to buy yeah. some of his cards and hold on to them long-term. And I just appreciate that side of it. Another thing I kind of like about the cards is the art itself. I mean, if you look at some of the vintage cards and even some of the insert cards in the nineties or early two thousands, they're beautiful. So this, this, this hobby itself has so many different things going for it. You have the data and the stats behind it. You have the sports behind it, which I played baseball when I was younger. You have that as well. You have the art behind it. You have the connections behind it. There's so much to it. And I just love it. Yeah. You know, I, so I've only been in for a year and a half or so. So I got in at the, at the beginning of 2020, I, you know, I was into the the hobby as a kid. I, I did the whole ripping cards or ripping wax when I was a kid and loved opening packs when I would, we, we would go to Target or Walmart, whatever. And I got back into it last year. And what I loved about it is so much of what you're talking about. It's just like, every time you get into a set, a player, the depth that you can really go in and dig, like you can really dig. And that's such a, a fun part of the hobby because there's really never a point where you do know everything, right? Like there's always more to learn. And that, that, that uh, venture, that advent, that, that, that part of the hobby is just so much fun to me. So I totally r relate when you talk about it that way. Um, and something that I really loved is that it's art as well, right? Especially some of the most beautiful looking cards out there. I'm starting, that's where my mind's been going a lot lately is what cards do I think just aesthetically look the best. Obviously history of the card matters and the pack odds and all that stuff matter, but like also just aesthetically what cards look really cool. So it's been such a cool part of the hobby. And for me, that's what's gotten me so into it. I know for you, you've been in it for much longer as a kid. You said you've you know been doing this for 15 years. You're only 23. That means that you've been doing it since you were eight. I know I saw on your Instagram, I, I, was, I was going through your Instagram feed the other day and saw that your dad owned a card shop back when he was in his 20s. Can you talk about that experience? I know I'm, I'm sure your dad's talked 
to you about that and what that was like? Is that, does that play a role in, in your, you know, love for the hobby now? Yeah. So um, I had one video on my channel. If you guys want to check it out, Upper Deck, very nice. And then they ended up sending my dad a random act of kindness for Father's Day. So I talked about it a little bit. Do you want to go more detail eventually in the future about a video? Um, but my dad owned a card shop in Dunning, Florida in the, uh, pretty much in the 90s. I think he opened it late 80s, early 90s. There's the exact uh, newspaper on the Instagram if you want to check that out. And I think it's a 1988 video. is what I saw on the newspaper. Yeah. So yeah. Right, right in the middle of the junk wax era. And uh, back then, there were so many different card shops in every city. So today, if you go to a city, there might be maybe five or six card shops. Back then, apparently to my dad, there's like 20 or 30 shops in everywhere. And if you kind of look at where the marketplace is today compared to then, it kind of makes sense. Think about how many eBay sellers are in your city right now selling cards or how many dealers are in your city. Back then, sure, there were some card shows, but you didn't have access to eBay. You didn't have access to My Slabs. You didn't have access to Starstock or Compsy. Like if you wanted to sell cards as a dealer, it's either the card shows Right. Which again, I don't know how the card shows were back then. I wasn't alive, uh, but you had the card shows and then you also had the card shops themselves. So if you're really interested in the hobby, you might own a card shop. And my dad really loved the hobby. So that's what he did. And, you know, he told me about the print runs and how, you know, people got screwed over in the nineties because no one realized how many people were just in it for the money side of thing and not just focusing on the collecting as well. And when some big dogs ended up taking out their money, the whole market ended up crashing, which is really scary. And, you know, he's always preached to me, focus on the vintage, focus on the goat. And I know a lot of few other YouTubers have talked about focusing on goats and there's been debates whether or not, oh, should you invest in a goat or not? Well, I can tell you from firsthand experience that people are always going to want your goats. Um, I'm not into basketball cards, but people 30 or 40 years from now are still going to want a LeBron card because that time frame, he still might be a top five player of all time. And if you're just looking at it from the, the stat perspective or the league perspective, you want to collect the best players of all time. So there can be the demand for that with baseball wise. Someone's always going to want a Nolan Ryan or a Sandy Koufax or a Mickey Mantle card because they're some of the greatest players of all time. And even if they only collect modern cards, they still want to have some of the best players of all time in their collection. So there's always going to be a demand for those rather than some of the newer stuff where sure a prospect can eventually be a top 10 player, but looking at it from like a lens of a collector, so lens of like 20, 30 years, how many of those top prospects that have been hyped up end up being a top 10 player? Like those top prospects of all time that are hyped up, they might make the hall of fame, but based off of their price perspective on getting the league, is that even there? Like if they become a low end hall of famer, is there any value long-term based off of the hype around it? You can look throughout the history. There's a ton of low-end Hall of Famers that you can pick up rookie cards very, very cheap. And they're a lot scarcer than the stuff being printed today. So you have to look at the hobby through that lens rather than just focusing on whatever's hot. You have to look at the long-term collectability of a card. Yeah, absolutely. And especially in a market like in a time period that we're sitting in right now, like it's so important. We're seeing it happen right now. The first thing to fall off is is the prospecting is the modern guys is the guys that is unknown right and so do you have do you currently only buy cards of 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 goats is that is that what you do right now or do you do any prospecting do you is there a part of that that you enjoy yeah no so i do prospect still um but how i prospect is kind of different than everyone else with it so i try to look for those players that people tend to pass on and uh, for some reason whether they're not hyped up or people just aren't talking about, I don't know, like some, there's always players out there that have good stats that the hobby just misses. And one example is Rafael Devers. His prices are finally going up, but if you look at his stats for the last three years, 
you wonder why people weren't jumping on him because mm. he has a high batting average, hits a lot of home runs, and plays for a major market like Boston. So I've been buying up Rafael Devers cards. Another player, for example, I've been buying up is Walker Bueller and Jack Flaherty. So there are pitchers, and a lot of people in the hobby don't want to invest in pitchers. That can be a whole other topic in itself. But if you look at comparison, if you look at how they compare to early Scherzer or early Kershaw or early Verlander, like these guys are really good. And Bueller this year has like a 2.1 ERA. Flaherty was absolutely dominating before he got injured swinging a bat. Still upset about that one, but I was able <laughs> to pick up some of their gold refractor rookie cards, some of their one of ones for pennies on the dollar compared to yep. players that are getting hyped up right now. And it makes no sense, but I'm going to go grab these players. And if they become a low end Hall of Famer, oh, well, right. I have a number to 25 card. I have a yep. one of one. It's awesome. If they don't pan out, right, I'm paying a pennies on the dollar compared to what people are paying for, let's say, a Wander Franco or Julio Rodriguez or anything like that. And nothing against these players. They could be generational talent players. They could do the best out there. But when you're paying $300 for a first Bowman Chrome PSA 10 compared to paying for a quarter or 50 cents for a first Bowman Chrome on another player, where's your ROI potential? If that quarter goes to $10, if you bought a lot of them, right now you're looking at yep. getting 40 X. What is that $300 card? What's the maximum potential on it? A Mookie bets goes for $300 as well. So you're saying a prospect is already going to be better than Mookie bets. I just don't get where the market's at with that. So that's why I try to stay away where everyone else is at. That's, that's a nice niche to be in. And that's, I'm sure that's the data, the data analyst in you, right. To be able to look at that stuff with the, with baseball, especially being such a statistical driven type of sport, I'm sure that works out really well for you. I'm sure that's what the fun is. Absolutely. And I, I love doing it. I mean, prospecting is a ton of fun. You never know what ends up happening. And my one minor league prospect, which I was investing in, just got hurt this week. So I was kind of sad about it. But he's, been, <laughs> he's been crushing it. It was CJ Abrams, if you know who he is, uh, for San Diego Padres. Number one prospect right now. But he has a Ricky Henderson speed, but can also hit for average. And he has a little bit of power, not a ton of power. So it could be one of those five-tool type players playing for a great team. I mean, look at how stacked San Diego is at organization. He's already a top 10 prospect. I was getting him when he was like prospect range 20 to 30. I was looking at his data and it made no sense why he was in that range from 20 to 30 comparison to some of these top 10 players. So I bought him early. Luckily, I was able to get a one-on-one uh, auto of his from Prism in 2019. Damn. Paid, I think, $200 for that. And now some of his base Prism autos lend are like $30, $40. So it's kind of crazy with that. That's awesome. So are you buying singles? Are you buying wax? What, what's your, how do you engage with the hobby right now? What's your strategy right now? And what are you focused on? Yeah. So I focus on singles. I'll buy both raw and graded. It just depends where the opportunities are. And it, it, like going into a card show, all I have in mind is I want to walk out with that card show with more cards, more opportunities than I had going in there. So whether that's the opportunities of networking and meeting new people, I also end up building out a YouTube channel if it's a successful show and then getting some new cards, whether I want to leverage that into a trade later on or I want to put that into my PC and hold this card, whether it's five or 10 years, just depends on that. I'm not as much as a quick flip guy. Like I'm not going to go out there and buy a player, let's say like people do with Otani, they'll buy Otani and expect to hit five home runs the next two weeks and then flip it again. I'm not right. that type of flipper. I go out there and I'll buy a card. I would hold it for at least a few years and then see where the opportunity is unless I move it in a trade for a card that I want to hold for a very, very long time. Nice. Love the strategy and that mindset of keeping things for long-term I'm sure helps you not be, you know, be patient with your plays and also look long-term and be able to bring a lot of value to what you do while we, so, so 
obviously the purpose of the show is I'm getting ready for the national Dallas car shows coming up. You've been to a lot of shows. Can you talk to me a little bit about the prep you're doing before you go to the shows um, and what that looks like? Yeah. So there's a lot of different things about shows. Um, so first thing I want to do before going to show is know what I'm actually bringing to the show. That's both your capital, like what you can actually spend at that show and your cards. Because if you go into the show blindly, you are going to lose money. You're going to spend too much money, which is going to hurt you for future shows and opportunities down the road. Because you always have opportunities to buy cards online, whether my slabs, eBay, or any other marketplace. And you also have opportunities to go out there at other shows. There's shows every single weekend throughout the country. So try to figure out like an estimate. Okay, do I, how much do I want to spend this weekend? I'm kind of loose with it. I don't have a definite number, but just have a ballpark. And then I know what slabs I'm bringing to a show. So unless a card, I know I can't replace it. I'm still going to try to a show. And I've done a, like a better job with that in the, now than in the past. In the past, I used to kind of hold everything, but now I'm more of willing to trade it because I can realize I can pick up other cards. So unless something's like under a pop 100 or just something I value so much that I don't want to get away, I'm more willing to work with those. But when you go to those shows, make sure you know the value on your cards as well, because people are going to lowball you based off of comps. If someone sees a comp for $200 and this card has been selling for 300 consistently, they're going to tell you, oh, this comp is $200. And if you don't do your research, you're going to believe them and you're going to lose out on $100 in that transaction. So know your numbers before going in the show. Same with like if you're targeting a specific player, specific set, know what you're looking for, know what price range it is, because people are going to lie about their comps. So everyone wants to get maximum value for their cards. And I don't blame people, especially dealers, because they have a lot of people coming through and will pay for that. But just know the numbers on top of your head before making a deal. Another thing I really like bringing to a show is right here is a loop. And the reason for that is if you're going into vintage cards, this loop right here can help you determine if a card is fake or if a card has been trimmed or altered in other ways. And there's a lot of different ways to look at it. It depends on print patterns. also depends on, you know, the different stocks of cards. There's a lot of different ways that you can tell if a card's real or fake. I have videos on my channel if you want to watch it because I can talk for a very long time about it. But these are like $10 on Amazon. Just buy one and hold on to you because you never know what you're going after. There's always a ton of raw cards. And even if a card is slabbed, there's fake slabs out there. There's also people that switch out cards on older slabs. Always use a loop to check your cards because you don't want to go out there, spend $1,000, $2,000 on a card, ends up being fake. And you're like, damn. And you don't know who that dealer is because that's the worst feeling out there. So that's a great point. And, and for sure, I would recommend people to go watch that video. I myself will go watch that video, right? Can you give us a quick little primer maybe on what to look for on slabbed cards? Is there something obvious for either raw cards or slab cards that you can at least identify right off the bat? Is there something easy to identify a, a fake slab or a fake raw card or a trimmed raw card? Yeah, so I'll show some examples of trim cards real quick. And then real quick. And we'll talk about fake cards as well. So while while you're ta- while you're looking for that, Ryan, I I I think the point that you brought up before this it, about going in with a strategy is absolutely pivotal. Like if there's one thing that I've learned for myself, the, the the three, four, five shows that I've been to here in San Antonio and in Dallas, 
the the differences between the shows and, and where I feel like sometimes I either do well or don't do well is specifically on whether or not I came in with a good strategy. Not only a strategy on what players I want to buy, what cards I'm looking for, what their most recent comps were, and the times I feel like I, I left with either paying too much for a card that I should have not paid for or uh, or buying a card that I didn't actually want was when I didn't go in with a strategy. Because inevitably, you walk into a room, you walk into the, the hall, and you see cards that, one, you didn't expect to see. There's way more than you expected to see just because it's an overwhelming feeling, especially when you're going to, like, the National. And I haven't even been, but even going into a Dallas card show, it's like the, the first thing that happens is that sometimes it's very overwhelming. And being in that space is different than all the strategy work or the prep work that you did beforehand. You can't necessarily prepare for what it feels like when you see a card that you're like, wow, that's a card. And that's also the beauty in it. That's the fun in it but also uh, why going in with the strategies is so insanely important. But Absolutely. So I wanted to showcase two cards right here that were trimmed, and then we can talk about fakes. So the first one right here, this is a 1940 Playball. Uh, if you don't know what Playballs are, this was like the brand Bowman had before they had Bowman baseball cards. So the first Playball is in 39. That has the Ted Williams rookie card, which is really iconic because it's the first Bowman set technically that I was ever produced. And of course, Ted Williams is one of your best players of all time. But looking at this card, I know it's going to be a little difficult, but you can see how there's a border around this card and kind of how the design is. So yeah. first thing when you're buying cards is know what they look like from the visual appeal side of things. Because sometimes if you don't know, a card's trimmed. And this is an example right here. All my friends gave this to me because when we went to a show, we found this card for a really good deal. Didn't take a look at it too closely and it was trimmed. Take a look at this card now. Do you notice the difference between those two cards? It's hard to see, but tell, tell me the difference. The outside the borders, right. but there's a second border around it, right? Yep. So someone cut around that one border wow, okay. and resized it and made it look like that border was gone. And if you don't know what the card looks like, you might just look at that mm. one border and think, oh, this is a cool card. This is pretty clean cut. It was trimmed. So that's why this card is trimmed. Also, if you look at it closely, I know it's going to be hard to pick up on video, um, but if you look under the loop, a, a edge that was trimmed is going to look different. Um, it's it's kind of hard to explain over the, this, but if you just look under it closely, how scissors affect it, sure. you're going to have a little bit of a crease near the corners because think about when you're cutting it across, you're going to have a crease right there. And typically when people cut a card, there's two different ways of it trimming. Sometimes there's bunny ears. So the card will go like that and up. The other one is the opposite. So the card will go up like that. So that's something that you can look at it and also the edge wear itself. So like a, each factory has different ways of cutting a card. You just have to know depending on different years and things like that. So like some people know how the 79 Opeachy cards with the Wayne Gretzky, yeah. they use barbed wire to cut it. So they're always going to have a rough edge compared to send to other cards where they're just a normal slice. So everything's a little bit different. You just have to know the printing process with that, but you take a look at under the loop and you can figure that out. Same with this card right here. So this is kind of the bunny ear example. And it just kind of shows you that people even trim cheap cards. This mm. card used to be a $3 card before this year when it exploded. And the tops trimmed it right over here. Got it. It's such a cheap card. And I wouldn't expect it because I bought this card. And I ended up selling this card on eBay. And someone messaged me and said, hey, just to let you know, your card was trimmed. And I was thinking, look, this is a $5 card. It's not oh, like a $10 man. card. Who would trim a cheap card? And they showed me and lined up, looked at closer pictures. I was like, yeah, it was trimmed. So I didn't do my research on it. But again, with a five to $10 card, is it really worth spending an extra 
five minutes looking into the loop and everything like that. So yeah, I just gave yeah, the guy yeah. a refund. But this is a, a real example of it. And I measured it up as, as well with the two different cards and it was short. So you just have to be careful with it because there's not everyone in the hobby is there to collect and have a good time. Some people are going to try to defraud people. Now, on the perspective of spot, there's a, there's a ton of different fakes out there. I make a video every Friday if you want to check those out. But I'll give you an example right here. So this is a 33 Gaudi. And I use the loop on this. And the first thing to do is look at the printing pattern on this. So I'm going to try to show it under the video. I don't know how well it's going to do. <laughs> uh, oh, you can see a little bit. So okay. you can see how that is. The big thing I always look for is the text. Is the text showing? Yeah, right. there you go. See how it's solid printing? Yeah. And a lot of the fakes, they aren't solid printing. And this huh. is talking about older cards, not modern cards. Because modern cards have a completely different printing process. Um, but when people try to replicate Gaudi cards, uh, they tend to have like a modern printing compared to old printing. So the old printing is the solid lettering. If you also look at how it's printed out and everything like that, completely different printing process. So by knowing the process of how cards were created, you can tell the fakes. Another thing that's really helpful with older cards, and this works for most years, not every single year, is the light test. So you can see when I put a light to it, nothing goes through it. Now, uh -huh. if you look at a modern card, for example, um, we'll go back over here to this one. See how the light mm. goes right through it? So okay. when people create it, they use a different stock and the light goes through it. Now, there is a few different years that doesn't work perfect for. So one example, 59 tops, the light test does not work. If you have a 59 tops, you put a light behind it, light will go through it. Cards, but some of the cards that happens. And I think the other one on top of my head is 66 or 67. Don't remember. Um, I'm trying to work on getting examples of every year and testing them out, see which one light test works or not. There's just so many different cards out there. Yeah. Uh, but it's a good way, like a good first measure. If you're not sure just to do the light test and then you could always do more research online. Uh, based around that but nice. those are some quick ways to do that again i have videos i try to make every single friday as spotting fakes and i'm actually in the process of publishing a book based around it uh, but you can check that out there i try to cover all the main cards that people are faking that's awesome that's all really great information i really appreciate you sharing that with the audience here um and and really the point of all this is to make sure that you know the card that you're buying and that you're intentional about what you're buying and you know what it looks like and you know all the details about it so that you are going in and I'm, I'm guilty of this too. I don't even know if I do enough of that research before I go in for a particular card. And so it's, it's, it's honestly very, very good information just to keep your eye up, to keep, you know, beware of, of who you're working with uh, and, and make sure that you know what you're doing. So that's, that's really helpful information. Um, now let's transition into how you're buying what you're buying at the shows. I know that since over the last year, as card shows have opened up, as more people are going to the card shows, um, a lot of the comps and stuff that are being set on eBay, what role are those types of comps playing when you're transacting in person? And, and how are people negotiating for cards using comps, or is it something else that we're not talking about yet? Yeah, so whether you love it or hate it, most of your dealers out there are just using comps to price all their cards. Yeah, okay. And that can be both advantageous and also bad at the same time. So um, there's also dealers now that will take raw cards and already comp it based off of a nine or a 10, or even with vintage, they'll say, oh, I think this will grade a five and already uh, comp it around a five, which I personally don't like because if you're trying to get a card graded, you still have the risk of it, whether it's trimmed, whether it's going to have mm. a lower grade or not. And people tend to overgrade what cards that they have. Most of that with modern too. So some like your high-end cards, someone will say, well, I'm looking at a comp price point of a PSA nine. 
on a card that's raw. Again, you still have to factor in the time, factor in the insurance of shipping it out there. There's so many other additional costs. So people are kind of being lazy with that. But right now it's a comp driven market compared to like what a price point in someone's mind is. Um, sure, you're going to find some deals that are under comped uh, and you're going to find some cards that are way over comped. Like let's say people who had comped all their cards when the market was high, they don't want to lose money. So they're just going to keep at that high price point because they don't want to lose it. So that's kind of like where the market's at with that right now. You just have to work on your best. You have to figure out like, what do I think is going to go up over time or what's under comped right now at the show? I, I can pick it up and then leverage that towards a deal. Yeah. Yeah. And, and you know, for, for, for me and, and how I'm looking at this too, it's like um, a lot of times you can tell if a seller is willing to negotiate or if they even have room in their price based on where their price point is or what they have it labeled as depending on the comps. And again, another reason why you should know what the comps are on the cards that you're going in looking for before you ever hit the the, the hall floor um, is for that reason, especially. Um, and, and what I have found is that when I see sellers that just have really high prices on their cards, for me, it's a kind of a, a quick indicator that I, you know, maybe it's, this is not the seller that's probably going to sell me the cards at a price that I want to buy at. Uh, whereas there are other times I'll walk by and I'll see well-priced cards. Cause I know that, you know, there's several cards I have in mind and I know what they're, they're, they're going for at this re- very moment. And it's a very easy way to say a little bit. Oh, sorry about that. Um, can you hear me now? Yeah, you're good. Cool. What I was saying is that there are knowing what cards are going for in general helps identify what sellers may also uh, negotiate with you um, while you're trying to figure out what you're willing to buy. Is that your experience with it as well? Yeah. And then another thing I've noticed too, and again, something I disagree with with the market, but it's what's set right now is some dealers are only going to work with PSA cards. They're not even going to look at your SGC or Beckett cards, mm. or they're going to give you a lot less of a comp on a Beckett card or SGC. And I personally don't like this. They claim like, oh, people are only here buying PSA cards. I have a philosophy, you buy the card first and then the grade second. So if something has more visual eye appeal, I don't care if it's graded by SGC. I don't care if it's graded by PSA or Beckett. You know, some cards, they're just not so many of them out. Such low pop. I'm just going to buy the card. And if I want to cross it over, you can cross it over whatever company that you prefer. But I, I I don't like that approach at all. And I get it because- how the market is so weird with it. Like SGC, for example, and Beckett have been known to grade vintage cards for a very, very long time. They have the reputation, but new people going to the hobby, all they see is PSA slabs all over social media. So they think, oh, PSA is the only grading company out there. And funny enough, uh, people don't realize this as well. Back in the early 2000s, the market was completely different with all these slabs. So Beckett was the premier company for grading um, if you look at like even the Brady contenders autos, guess what most of them are graded with Beckett. Yeah. They're not PSA because that was the industry standard back then. They had the Beckett magazine, they also had the Beckett marketplace, which they tried to having to like eBay. It just didn't work out as much, but they had the magazine and they also had the grading company and the authentication for autographs. They were the market leader. PSA was known for like getting cards graded, but they're more for modern cards rather than vintage cards. Then you had SGC who graded a ton of pre-war cards and vintage. So all three of these grading companies existed, but they all had their specific niches. Like Beckett was really known for their autograph cards. You look at how the cards have an autograph grade and then they also have another grade on it as well. So you'll see like, oh, autograph grade 10, card 9.5. That's because they focused on those higher, higher end cards. PSA focused on the non-autograph cards and then SGC was vintage. So it was kind of interesting to see how the market gravitated towards that, towards now PSA is the leader on everything down the line 
rather than where it was in the past. And I think it's a lot because the new people are going to the hobby to see more PSA slobs out there and assume that they were the authority based around everything. So in terms of grading with Beckett and PSA, you know, one thing for me, as I'm starting to get into autograph cards a lot more is that I will only look at cards uh, graded by Beckett for autograph cards for the most part, just because I like to have the autograph separately graded. And with a lot of the PSA graded cards on autograph cards, I see that either they're not graded, uh, the auto is not graded uh, or just as authenticated. Uh, there's a lot of other variables with PSA graded cards. Uh, and, and I wonder why, you know, I know you said that a lot of people are, um, you see PSA graded items all over social media and it coincides with this boom that we've had on base cards and parallels, uh, and refractors versus the autograph cards, which I know are mostly Beckett cards. So how do you, do you think that's played a role in terms of not only does it coincide with, uh, the, 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 the change in what company was grading things at that time and what's gone in with, uh, with newer hobbyists coming into the, to the market. Yeah, I'll agree with that. And another thing I want to talk about with that as well is, um, like when you're grading a card and just authentic with the autograph as well, you aren't grading that card for alterations. There's, I talked to a few other dealers that um, get cards signed and things like that. And they see some of the cards that people have signed are cards that aren't going to grade high or have been altered because they just don't want to get that authentic label on the card if they're going to get slapped. So then they'll get the player and well, they're grading the cards authentic. Yeah. And the autograph, sure. But because they don't grade the specific card, you can get away with an altered card that looks really good presentation wise. Um, but then has an autograph under it. So it's kind of interesting with that perspective. I disagree with it. I think you should have both the card graded and the autograph graded with that because you can have alter cards slip by. And if people just look at the card based off eye appeal, they're like, oh, this card looks like a six or a seven. Mm-hmm. When in reality, it's already been altered. Someone sliced off a corner or tried to pretty up the card with recoloring it. And then it's graded just by the autograph itself. So those slip by through the system. And also I've been starting to see a little bit on social media uh, people are using reprint cards and getting those signed by players, and then they're just getting them slabbed as authentic. Well, those are fake cards, uh, mm. fake reprints with that. So people might think they're getting an, uh, a real rookie card that's signed, but it's really a fake reprint that's been signed and then getting slapped. So I disagree with that approach. I think the card needs to be graded along with the autograph itself. Yeah, yeah, I completely agree. And if you're looking to buy those cards, I think having both grades there is absolutely important. I mean, I, for me, that's like I won't look at cards that don't have both of those graded. Um, so you talked a little bit about bringing both cards and your cash to a card show. Can we talk a little bit about how trading at a card show works? What's the premium that gets put on the card in your experience percentage-wise if you're trying to trade versus if you have uh, cash that you're willing to buy the card with? Yeah. So honestly, every dealer is different, right? Okay. Some dealers want to get rid of inventory. And if they've had inventory there for a few months, they're completely open to trading. Other dealers are like, nah, I need to get an additional 20% or 30%. And other dealers are just going to give you an even better deal cash-wise when you work with the trade. It's it's just, it's really weird. Um, so you have to look at the perspective. It just depends on the situation that you're in and just kind of treat it differently. Because I've had dealers where a card's $1,500. I give $1,500 in trade value. And they're perfectly okay with that. There's other dealers. Mm-hmm. If a card was $1,500, they want about $1,500 in trade plus another two or $300. And you just have to read the situation and go, am I better selling these cards and using the cash towards this? Or am I better using the cards themselves 
and then putting an extra $300 on it. Am I going to sell those cards? So you just really have to look at the situation and see where you're at and whether that trade or not is worth it. I mean, for me, I do vintage cards. So sometimes it's harder to find those people that want to buy the vintage cards, especially specific niche ones. So I might have to do that route. But other times, like if I have a mixture of modern and vintage and a dealer does modern cards as a vintage card on them, they're more willing to work because their demographic is modern cards versus vintage. So they're willing to give up that item. Yeah. Yeah. And trading is a lot of fun because you're matching priorities in an entirely different way than just money for card, right? So uh, it is interesting. And that's been my experience with it at the last few shows that I've been to is most of the time I do feel like if you're trading, you have to give, there's a slight premium involved depending on the cards that you're uh you're bringing to the show. Also, if you're trading up or if you're trading down, right? Um, I think that also has a difference to it. Yeah. Some, some dealers will not trade down at all. They're very stick on. I only trade up and I get it right. Because it's so hard to trade up over time. But for me, like I try trading up every show. I try to bring in cards and see what I can end up getting out of it because it just, it's so much fun. And you pick up cards that you would never get before. Like I ended up at one of the Dallas shows, picking up a Walter Johnson card and I got his T206 portrait. And that was a card I've been looking for for nice. years. And the dealer just straight up trade. All right, $1,500 worth of trade material. So I gave him some Acunas that I picked up at the show at half comps, along with some other modern cards and then some vintage cards that I picked up that were under comp. And we made a deal on that. And then I finally have the Walter Johnson in my PC. Very nice. Like that's that's awesome. That's that's a great way to match up those you know priorities there. I, I think that's awesome. Um Let's go into kind of what role do you think the card shows are going to have on building community and the long-term success of the hobby? Because I think that's where a lot of the intangible benefit of going to a card show comes from. What's been your experience with in terms of building community, building new friendships and new connections? Yeah, no, I think the card shows are absolutely a great way. I mean, when I go to card shows and I meet some subscribers or meet other YouTuber or content creators, we talk for a bit. And sometimes like if, if our schedules line up, we'll go out and grab lunch and get to meet each other and see what it is. And you can build out long-term relationships and friendships just from that. And you just have to have an open mind with it. Um, cards connect us, right? You wouldn't be knowing these people without cards. They live in different States. They have different interests in life, but just because of going over the cardboard, creating content online, or just, you know, collecting the same type of cards or having the same general interest. Now you can create friends. And now I've met a lot of people at card shows that I still text now daily and have these friendships that I never thought I would have ever had. And it's really awesome to have that there. You know, you get to meet so many new people and it's fun. It's it's honestly my favorite part of it. And, and it's unique, I think, to cards, like in terms of uh, investing or money-making activity out there, like there's something about cards that builds a lot of community and as someone who's kind of newer into the hobby with everyone that I've met being so insanely generous with not only their time, but also their knowledge and their experiences, like even just doing this show and having people be so generous with what they're, what they're willing to do here and and, and provide knowledge to, to all the people that are trying to learn and navigate this hobby for the first time. Um, I think that's been my favorite part of it as well. Uh, and it's definitely one of my favorite parts of going to the shows. So, um, what let's close with this. What pieces of advice do you have for anybody going to a show for the first time? Yeah. So the first advice I'd have is actually research what show you want to go to. So I understand you can't choose your local show and you have to go that, but if you're going to travel out of state, look up the shows before you go, because each show is different. If you want to find modern cards, you go to Dallas. If you want to go find vintage cards, you might want to go to Wisconsin 
uh, for the Wiz Dallas show. And there's so many other shows as well, like the Philly show, the Virginia CSA show. Like I'm trying to go out there and show people that each show has their own specific flavors, own, own type of specific dealers and things like that. Each area or market is different. So if you're going to travel out of state, figure that out too. And also like what's in the area as well. Um, one thing like I touched up briefly on this episode is there's more to an area or traveling than just going to the card show. Um, like if anyone's going to national, please explore downtown Chicago, enjoy the yeah. food around there. Just don't eat food at the convention center. Chicago is an awesome place. And you're going to look back in a few years. If you don't go to national again and go, dang, you know, I was at Chicago. I didn't try a beefsteak sandwich. I didn't have a deep dish pizza. I didn't have a hot dog out here. You know, try to, try to enjoy the place. It's more than just cards in itself. You know, you spent all this money to go and travel to a show, go out with some friends and enjoy the city. Um, so that's one of the big things I'm a big proponent of doing more than just the card show in itself. Um, obviously we talked about as well, networking at these events. It doesn't matter even if like you don't have a, you don't create content or anything like that. If you see some content creators that you watch, go up and approach them. And I know everyone's busy at the national, but just say for a few minutes, Hey, you know, my name is whatever. I watch your content. Thank you for doing it because it helps you keep, keeps you motivated and you build out these connections because even if you are a subscriber, you might be able to go out there and, you know, grab a lunch or anything like that back at Dallas show, I had someone reach out to me and said, Hey, I watched your video and you're talking about cricket cards. I click cricket cards. Guess what? We ended up going to lunch and talked about cricket cards for about an hour and a half. So go out <laughs> there and uh, go out there and approach you know, the people that you watch online approach any dealers that you know, and just start those conversations. Don't be scared to talk to someone with that. Another thing, just have an open mind. Not every show is going to be great. I mean, yeah. I talked about it as well. I don't publish every single card show that I go to. If I'm, I don't have great shows all the time, sometimes I'll just pick up one card that I picked up for $10. It's a $50 card. Cool. Right. It's a $40 profit from that if I sold it, but it's not worth making a video on it. And you know, sometimes you're going to go to a show and not buy cards. I've had that happen as well. I've recorded footage at a show and I just couldn't make any deals that day. All my trades got declined. I just didn't really find anything I wanted to add to PC or bring to another show. So just keep that in mind. Not every show is going to be great. And if you have a bad show, even if it's early on, don't be discouraged. You're going to learn so much going to shows every single weekend. I mean, I don't recommend going to shows every single weekend because you <laughs> lose a lot of different things with your social life. You lose a lot of other opportunities out there. But if you go to shows, let's say once a month or once every two months, you're going to learn a, new, a lot of new things. The more and more shows that you go to, it's all about patience. You're not for it the first time you do something. Absolutely. And the point that I really love that you made just there is using shows to be a conduit for adding kind of life experience, right? Like that's what will keep us in this hobby for a long, long time is that if we use it to do things like meet new people and try new cities and use it as an excuse to travel the world and go to other places. I was talking to one of my one of the people I know on Instagram from Australia and how they're trying to uh, build kind of a national in Australia and, and do a, a big show out there. And I was thinking to myself, like, that's such an awesome opportunity to go and explore uh, Australia, you know, take my wife and make that an excuse just to go out there and try something I've never, or go to a place I've never been to. Um, and I think that's such a great point, you know, using this as a conduit to really do something more with your life. And that'll keep us in this hobby a lot longer than any of the money that we make. Cause at the end of the day, that's really what it's about. So. Absolutely. Um, and I was going to say real quick, who is that guy that's trying to do a national in Australia? Because I might need to reach out to him for some cricket cards right there. 
Yeah, I'll, I'll I'll have to look it back up and, and I'll I'll let you know when we uh, connect offline. But uh, I for, I forget who I'm sure you know. I, I know when I was talking to him, like guys like uh, Cherry Collectibles and those guys are really big into it and, and very you know uh, very tuned into what's going on, especially in the Australian market. Um, but that's definitely one of the one of the big accounts that's from Australia, right? So I know that they're doing yeah, something big. That, that's cool out there. I mean. Now, we're going to go into another rant. I have a feeling for a second, but I was talking to a UK collector and I didn't even realize um, they have their own like national in the Nike and they focus more on pre-war cards. Like it's a collecting society. So they focus and UK collectors are different than US collectors. So in the US right now, we focus mo- mainly on sports, yeah. but in the UK, they focus on just tobacco cards in general and tobacco cards could have like animals or plants on them, uh, famous figures and different things like that. Just a completely different market. And they have a national over there as well, which changes locations uh, throughout the United Kingdom. And it's a really, really big event over there. So that's something I want to check out like in another year or so when the world opens back up and, you know, build out that UK travel vlog video where I go out there and see how that is. That's awesome. And and I'm looking forward to seeing that video. Let me ask you one other question about the differences uh, between shows, even within the US. What do you think contributes to those differences between the Wisconsin show and the Dallas show and the the shows in the Northeast? What, What do you think is contributing to the shows being so different from one another? So first is just the areas, right? Like if you're going to go to a Dallas show, you're going to find more of your Dallas players. You're going to find your Dax. You're going to find your Emmett Smith. You're going to find your Nolan Ryan cards mm-hmm. versus if you go up to Wisconsin, how many people, I mean, sure Dak and Emmett Smith and Nolan Ryan are popular players, but there's a less of an incentive to bring those out or have specific cards tailored towards that up in Wisconsin. You're probably going to have a lot more green Bay Packers cards. You're going to have a lot more Aaron Rodgers. And you might have some more hockey cards just because it's farther up North. So that's the first thing on it. The second is just kind of demographics, right? If you look at the, where the cities are located at Dallas is pretty diverse compared to where mm-hmm. up at Wisconsin is less diverse. So based on the collecting base, that's air and the people that table each show is going to have their different cards. So down in Dallas, you have how many different teams you have? What you have a hockey team. Does Dallas have a basketball? Oh, yeah. The basketball team, right? You have Luca there. They have a baseball team and they have a football team. So you have all those type of opportunities to go at that card show versus Wisconsin. They have obviously the football team. Do they have any other teams up there? I'm trying They've to got remember. the bucks. Yeah. And then they also have technically uh, the brewers as well up there, but it's a little bit farther away than uh, the, the one show I ended up going to and was Dell's, but each place is a little bit different based off of the teams that are there and just the demographics of who's tabling and demographics plays a big thing because you're different types of people there collect different types of cards. Hmm. So like newer, newer people in the hobby or younger people are more likely to collect basketball cards versus your established collector who's been here for 30, 40 years are mostly going to collect the vintage baseball cards. So it just really depends on who's tabling at the show and who tables on the show depends on also like, if you're going to be able to trade, you're going to make deals, how to comp cards. So that's why I like, I try to show off the videos to try to help people see like each show is different in its own DNA. Find the show that works best for your collecting style. I love it. I love it. That's it's, it's a great piece of advice, Ryan, you know, the experience that you are gaining right now at, at a pretty young age in your life, going to all these shows, I'm sure it's teaching you just a ton about, you know, uh, people and, uh, and business and, and so many other things. Um, I, I want to thank you for coming on the show. I really appreciate you joining. Uh, this was a fun one. I think coming up, coming here to the national, I think this is going to be a fun one to, to publish. 
Um, if you want to come on and be a guest on the show, uh, please do what Ryan did and reach out. You can reach me on Instagram at the slap talk. Uh, uh, if you're watching on YouTube, hit that subscribe button. If you're listening on podcasts, please leave a rating and a review and follow Ryan at breakout cards on both Instagram and YouTube. Ryan, thanks again for joining, man. I really do appreciate it. Hey, thanks for having me on. I appreciate it. And sorry guys for my video. <laughs> my camera died. Have a good one, everyone.